Welcome, tennis fans, to KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, featuring former world number one and seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt Spielander, former Texas Longhorn, two-time All-American Johnny Levine, and your host of KickServeRadio.com, Andy Zoden. KickServeRadio.com is presented to you by SquadPod, committed to protecting your privacy and your business. Communicate safely with SquadPod. And Bracket, spelled B-R-A-C-K-I-T, an interactive mobile game where being aligned with celebrities and athletes has a nice payoff for you and charity. Take it away, AZ. And take it away, I will. Welcome, everybody, to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. Our team consists of the great Matt Vlander, seven-time major champion, former number one in the world. We'll be joined a little later in the show by former two-time Texas Longhorn All-American, Johnny Levine. And, Matt, we're pretty excited about our featured guest tonight. You've been talking about wanting to get this young lady on our show for some time and finally, you got her. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm going to spill the beans, Andy. Go ahead. Go for it. Andrea Yeager. I mean, you're my age, Andrea. In fact, you're a year younger than me, uh, but uh, you made the finals of the French Open when you were 16 years old. Yeah, it was. I, I remember you. You were like you were a machine back there at the baseline. But then you could serve in volley like anybody. I mean, it, it was it was cool watching. I was I was in one of those eras where I mean, Connors, McEnroe, Borg, Edberg, you, Yannick Noah. It was it was pretty amazing. And then, of course, you know, the, the famous ones in women's tennis, Billie Jean King, Martina, Chris Everett, Tracy Austin, Pam Shriver. I had a pretty cool era. And Andrea Yeager has to be mentioned among those. Andrea made the semis or better of every major, the finals of Wimbledon, the finals of the French Open, as you just mentioned, Mats. And as we were talking before we went on air, Andrea turned pro at 14 and by 16 or two in the world. I mean, Johnny and I have been pretty impressed with Mats all this time, winning the French Open at 17. And here you are, two in the world. Did you even have your driver's license by the time you achieved a ranking like that? No, I didn't. Okay. I actually, I actually got my driver's license really late. Um, most people, kids are excited to get theirs. And, and for me growing up and traveling so much, it, I, I just wasn't that interested in it. And I, I knew that I would eventually get it, but I was too busy trying to catch up just on finals and schoolwork. So I didn't worry too much about the license, but I eventually got it before I was 17, just before 17. So, Andrew, uh, some of some of uh, part of this show is we're trying to make fun of our guests sometimes. Uh, <laughs> All we the time. can't, we can't because of your singles record. But I gotta ask you, how sore is your back from having carried Jimmy Arias <laughs> to win the French <laughs> Open mixed? I mean, Jimmy was not a known volleyer. He didn't come to the net. First of all, what did that look like? Did you guys? serve and both stayed back or how did you, <laughs> no, I'm being serious how did you do that well it was it was pretty amazing I was so excited that he agreed to play mixed doubles because I mean you played a lot of doubles I love playing doubles but a lot of top um, singles players in men's and women's tennis Martina of course played doubles but notoriously they'd stay away from doubles because they thought it would interfere then you had mixed doubles very rarely did you ever see someone doing that and so I I pretty much begged him. I was so excited because I grew up in juniors with Jimmy. And and so for him to say yes, I just, I was on like cloud nine, just playing with him. And then we would go 
we did like dinners and breakfast. We went to the Harlem Globetrotters in Paris and watched that. But when we played together, he rarely missed a return and I didn't miss that much. And so I think people had such a hard time because they really would have to put an extreme winner in place to win the point because we would run everything down. And I think the the finals or I think it was the finals. It was Betty Stova. I don't remember the male player, but they were like two feet taller than us. Yeah, they <laughs> Maybe were, Tom Offner. Yes. <laughs> and, and we, we really just had no strategy other than to go out, have fun and play our normal game, which was, look, we're not going to miss. So you're going to have to either put it through us or do something spectacular. And all of a sudden we won the French open. It was amazing. <laughs> we beat, I think, McEnroe and um, Carrillo's youngest um, French Open um, double. So that, to me, greatest victory ever, winning the French Open with Jimmy Ayers. Like, then I could have stopped and felt complete. <laughs> so having fun on the court, clearly, you know, it's it's great to reflect back on those times with Jimmy. But it wasn't always the case that you were having a ton of fun on the court, Andrea. And if you read a little bit more about what was going on in those days, yes, you were having tremendous success. But there was some inner conflict and you weren't necessarily comfortable in the skin of a tennis superstar. Talk a little bit about that and how it moved you toward a life of philanthropy the way it did. Well, it was, it was interesting how you um, kind of transcended into to that part because it was a little different. It wasn't that I wasn't comfortable being that tennis phenom, as you know, some called it, because I, I did have such a enormous trajectory. I mean, my trajectory when you're, you know, you, I was winning pro tournaments at 13 and then turned pro at 14, two in the world at 16. It just wasn't happening on the circuit. I love training, love tennis, um, loved hotels. There was a lot of that aspect. I think the inner turmoil, which you did reflect upon was a little different than being um, at a top level in professional sports. It was more, there just wasn't I didn't feel like I was contributing to the universe by just playing tennis. I love tennis. I mean, I, I still love tennis to this day, but I always wanted to to use it as a platform to do something and help people in the world somehow. And so I did try to do that while I was on the circuit. And, and there was conflict because back then, I mean, now you look at sports, sports is to bring people together. It's community, it's philanthropy, it's charitable endeavors, it's it's heart and spirit together. And back then it was just different. I mean, the, the women on the circuit were trying to make a name for themselves. They were trying to get women's tennis to be some of the most successful in professional women's sports, give a chance to girls in sports, have success. And it, it just didn't lend to, okay, could you be a humanitarian and a professional tennis player? So I, um, I basically was told that on the, t- I was told by the tour that I could either play tennis or I could help kids. I couldn't do both. So it was, um, you know, it's not what you hear every day. It doesn't happen all the time, but you know, my circumstance, I was playing at Madison square garden in the championships. And to me, Madison square garden is, it's a very esteemed place in the, in the U S if you grow up in Europe, that's different, but in the U S you know, Madison square garden and, and there was a day off and um, some kids, they were having difficulties at, at a school in white plains and kids, there was a cluster suicide going on with these kids. And, you know, they're my age. I'm a teenager. And I'm like, no, this this can't be happening. We have to do something. So I went to the school on my day off, met with student council, tried to help the kids. The community was grieving. Just 
really reached out to them and, and loved it. It was like a great day during my, you know, this, these were the um, year end championships that were going on. Didn't tell anyone. I never told press back, you know, at all, like, Hey, I'm going to do something. And it just didn't sit well with the tour. And the next day I got called into a hotel room by the top player and um, the WTA PR director. And they were really upset and threw this newspaper at me and, and they go, you got to quit doing this. And I thought it was question. I was questioning line calls too much, you know, like, Oh, Andrew's got to stop questioning line calls. And I looked at it and it was like tennis sensation could have been shopping on fifth Avenue. Instead, she's helping kids um, in our neighborhood. Isn't that great? And, and uh, you know, and it was like, she could have been spending her millions of dollars shopping, but she's doing something to help us. And I was confused because I looked at him. I said, Oh yeah, I went to white plains to help the kids. And they said, well, you got to quit doing that. And I go, why? It was on my time. And they said, it's making us look bad. And so basically, you know, it. I tried to explain, I went the whole heart level, didn't work. I went the whole, hey, look, you know, these people, they're giving us our prize money. These communities are paying for us to be here. They're going in the seats. They're paying their hard-earned money. Let's give back. Didn't work. So basically they told me I can make a choice, either play professional tennis and never help kids or go help kids and quit tennis. So I left the hotel room, walked to the elevator and said to God, you decide, you know, I love tennis. I have contracts. I have all these things, but I love helping kids. So you're going to have to make this decision. And this was March in 84. And in at the French open center court, I'm up five Oh in the first set and my shoulder popped. And I went, and it was a bad pop. I mean, it was like Jaws took my arm and took off with it. And, and I went, oh, it's career ending. God made the decision. Okay, I go help kids full time. So for me, it's kind of weird because most professional athletes, they have a hard time leaving their sport because it's like, you know, the applause and the lights and the glamour and the fame and the money. Mine was, okay, I know I had a choice coming up. God made it for me. Here I go. Let's Let's take care of, you know, the kids. So when you say, oh, it was just nobody knew about that because, you know, what am I going to do? Call a press conference and ream the tour, you know, is a place, you know, tennis I love. I love to this day. So you protect kind of what you love in that sense. You know, it wasn't cool what they did, but, you know, I went on and have, you know, I'm on my 36th year of my own foundation helping kids. So with cancer and, and kids in need. So, you know, the universe has a way of working things out. After that French Open, a, a world famous reporter came up to me and it was right after I came out of the locker room and he said, you better get back on the courts. You will never amount to anything ever again if you don't play tennis. And I just I was kind of shocked because obviously nobody knew this hidden other story behind it. And I was just really surprised that that people would think that the only essence you could have to contribute to the world is by your sporting profession. And um, I met up with him like 20 years later and he came up to me and he said, I have to apologize. The things you've done for kids and for, the, you know, the world in, in your spirit, you know, I know that you got your spirit got broken by the circuit and, and by far more than what happened in that, you know, in the circumstance of you leaving tennis. And he goes, but you didn't stop. You decided to share your spirit with others. And I thank you for that. And so that was kind of cool. I mean, I would have loved for him to do it 20 years earlier. <laughs> you know, that would have been awesome. But, you know, life life goes on. Andrea, let me ask you this. When we look at when we look at today's game and if we had to make a comparison, 
to somebody who's maybe in a similar situation and certainly has enjoyed the success to the extent that you did. But Coco Goff is out there trying to represent the American game and, and, and doing a pretty good job. But as well, you know, she's speaking out on social issues and she's got a very adult approach to what she's doing both on and off the tennis court. What do you see in her that you like and that you're proud of? And what do you see in her that maybe if you had an opportunity to get into a room with her for half an hour, you might want to advise her on? What's great about Coco is that she has had trendsetters before her that she can emulate. So you can watch people and say, I want to be like that person. I want to be like this person because the demand on their lives, Matt knows this, the demands on, on, on someone's lives that has that kind of extraordinary presence in the world beyond sport it's all encompassing. And, and the reason that they can still fulfill it is because they have the love of the game, the passion of the game. And that's what Coco needs to feed into. You know, it, it, the whole thing for her, you know, nobody has to get in a room with her. She's, you know, she's pretty exceptional. The fact of the matter is, look who's playing that have the passion for the game and have the passion for humanity. And boy, take some, take some notes on that. And there's plenty of them on the women's and men's circuit that she can look at and, and go, wow, okay, following these footsteps is pretty awesome. I got a pretty golden chance right here. Uh, Andrew, uh, obviously, we, we talked about Jimmy Arias. He's my age, by the way. I think he's a week older than me. He was number one in, uh, in America in our, when we were juniors, of course, and to me, like, I don't care who's number one in America. This is a world sport. So we the Europeans didn't really have the respect for the number one American. Whereas when we came and played Orange Bowl uh, or the Rolex International Port Washington or whatever. Oh, that, that, that's Jimmy Arias or whoever it is. He's number one in America. And we're OK, good. Where is he in the world kind of thing? Yeah. It seems too important to uh, the tennis world in America to have a kid be number one in America in the 12 and under, 14 and under, 16 and under, you obviously were. How does that pressure? I see a lot of American tennis players that are great juniors. They don't blossom the way you did. Uh, and Coco Goff, I'm slightly concerned, not about her as a person, but about her game and is the pressure too much. What's your take on that? Well, I, I think um, in Europe, a lot of kids grow up playing another sport they, along with their tennis and they, they love it. And so they've, it's just a natural tendency. Um, Europeans, and, and I know I'm, you know, I'm probably going to get calls and emails on this, but it just seems like the hunger of Europeans coming through because maybe America's the promised land. Everyone you know, talks about, gosh, if I can make it to America, I've made it. If I can make it to New York or Broadway. And so there's this envision of how great it is. But it, the work ethic is real important. Like I played uh, the Wimbledon Legends in 2019 last year. They had it. And I've watched Rafa practice. I practiced next to him. I watched Roger practice, practiced after him. These guys are practicing as if it's their first day on the pro tour. Okay. It, it, it's really something that is special to them and sacred. And I think in, in America, because so much is focused on results in juniors. And, and I know that that's important, but it, their mind is not as developed in their sport as I think the physical attributes or the ground strokes. When I played, it's like, I knew I could be a master on the court. 
no matter what I knew if I wanted, you know, if, if I played my game, I could win any match I played, you know, from, you know, at 14, 15, I was still figuring out players 16, 17. I basically knew I could win every single match I played if I wanted to players. Now they're extraordinary. Their physical prowess is, you know, off the charts, their ability, their power, their everything, but they can't sustain it like Rafa, Roger, and Novak had over the course of time. And in the women's, the same thing, you know, like Barty right now had to make a decision. She has to travel the whole year and not go home until September. You know what? I think that makes her hungrier. It's like, I'm going to be here right now and I don't get to go home. I've made that decision. So I'm putting a hundred percent into everything. I'm going to bring up something, uh, Andrea, and maybe you remember this and, and you were saying how you're going to get some nasty emails and phone calls. I'm probably going to on this one, unfortunately, they're going to be from Matt's. Um, and that is that maybe you remember, because I know you're close with John McEnroe, but if memory serves, John at one time was critical of Matt's because Matt's didn't kind of behave like a guy that being number one in the world was just absolutely all consuming to him. And then he kind of made some comments that, you know, if I'm out here winning at the high level that I'm winning at and I'm one, two, three, four in the world, I'm okay with that because I'm at peace with the fact that I'm out there playing every match as hard as I can. And am I imagining this or was that something that, that, that John once was critical of you a little bit, Matt, or, or Andrea, do either one of you all remember that? John and Jimmy, to be honest, Andy, Uh, Jimmy Connors had the same thing, but yeah, that is true. I never really played and thank God I didn't because as soon as I became number one in the world, I won one more tournament in my professional career, which was a year after that. So uh, that's just a number and it didn't help me at all. But uh, let's move on a little bit, Andrea, and talk about clay court tennis. Um, I'm assuming that clay court tennis uh, is very dear to you. Would I think clay court was your best surface or you were the, the, uh, uh, the biggest threat on a clay court? How, how did you feel when the clay court season came around the corner and the French Open is sort of a month away like we are now? I knew I could run a lot more down on a clay court. So for me, um, I didn't really have a a preference because I I could play on all surfaces equally well. I just knew that I could wear someone down so much quicker on clay that they would be exhausted before we got anywhere. Um, I I just, I remember Virginia Rizic telling me um, that, I mean, it was like after the first game, she was like exhausted. She's like, it's just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, I knew when people walked on the court with me, they were going to have to basically put everything they had into it to win. And even if I lost the first set, it was like, okay, they're going to be too tired to finish it. And that pretty much happened to me. I have one other comment about the clay, but I do want to go back to that other thing. When you look at Serena and Venus Williams, the, they came on of Compton. They didn't, they weren't spoiled growing up. They had to fight to get out. Look what they've become. You look at the champions they become. And I, and that's what I was talking about with the hunger and the passion. It's like, if you spoil kids so much that you're, you're going to give them everything, 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 you don't give them the drive to get there themselves. Whereas Serena Venus, they had nothing growing up. They, they had gunshots outside the, the court while they're playing and that made them stronger to accomplish. Um, but anyway, back to the clay, you know, I loved it because I, I just didn't think there was anything anyone could do. Um, their weapons were neutralized. 
I guess that's the best way to say it, because if someone like Martina with her lefty serve, if she was on, you know, on on a grass court and the grass was slick, she has an advantage. Everything's neutralized on clay because I can run everything down. Andrea, I got to tell you, it's it's really been uh, an amazing opportunity for us and a treat to be able to visit with you and to hear your passion. And um, I just, I'm sorry that Johnny Levine is not on with us because he was the one that was like, Oh my God, listening to her. I could listen to her, you know, all night long. And I know that when he, when he does this catch this part of the show, he's going to be really excited that you were a part of it with us. So thanks so much. And Matt's great job as always getting Andrea to come on with us. All we have to ever do is play that ace in the hole card of our former seven-time major winner and suddenly people <laughs> like you show up on our zoom call oh my gosh i pick up the balls on a practice court for maps are you kidding <laughs> <laughs> andrea thank you very much it's great great to see you and thank you for everything that you have done and are doing with your life and um yeah, I wish you would have grown up playing now because I think now they would have embraced uh, your your willingness to go out and help other people uh, while playing tennis. So you were ahead of your time, but can't thank you enough. It's great to see you and see you maybe at the U.S. Open. Yeah, baby, hopefully so. I'm joined by two of the best teenagers in the history of men's and women's pro tennis, Mats Vlander and Andrea Yeager. Mats will be with me in the next segment. Andrea will be with us again, hopefully sometime soon. You're listening to KickServeRadio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we'll be back with more right after this. I am joined by Squad Pod's head of strategy, Jenny Jerome. And Jenny, I have to ask you this question. There's so many new communication platforms, and people are trying to accentuate privacy for obvious reasons. People are trying to stay out of trouble on social media, but why Squad Pod? SquadPod was built on privacy. So we were originally built for businesses, but we're finding that a lot of people are using us on college campuses because a student can say something, you know, kids being kids, and all of a sudden that's now come back, taken out of context, and it just bites them in the chuckus, and it interferes with their job recruitment. It can interfere with them even getting into college, getting into grad schools. So we're used a lot, and we have a really good focus whenever you're dealing with kids being kids. But also whenever you're dealing on the sports side with intramural sports or any type of team communication that you want to have between you and your players. So keeping our college youth out of trouble when it's time to enter the real world and protecting proprietary intellectual properties and everything in between is something that really can be protected by Squad Pod. Exactly. Another thing, Andy, that's important is you hear a lot about bullying. You hear a lot about stalking, things like that on social media. Well, with Squad Pod, because it's closed architecture, the people that you have in your squad, the people that you invite onto this app are only the people that you invite to the squad. So you're actually communicating with the people that you choose to have and that you choose to engage with. So it cuts down a lot on the bullying and things like that, because if somebody does get a little untoward, let's say on the app, you can just remove them and say, no, that kind of conversation does not belong on my team. Lots of advantages. She's Jenny Jerome. She is Head of strategy at SquadPod. Jenny, thanks so much for joining us. Check it out. It's squadpod.com. Go check it out right now. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. 
to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome back, everybody. KickServeRadio.com. We are part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. AZ, Matt's Vlander, Johnny Levine will be joining us in the next segment. But, Matt's, before we move on to talking a little bit of Barcelona, what about that Andrea Jaeger? I mean, energy, charisma, I mean, she's got it all, doesn't she? Oh, unbelievable. I mean, how unfortunate for her, of course, but for the, for the uh, world of tennis in the early 80s. I mean, she came up and she was playing and beating Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova, Tracy Austin was in there, Hannah Manlikova. I mean, this is like a golden age of, of women's tennis. And she was in there as a 16-year-old. So, I mean, what a, a shame that she wasn't able to continue. Yes, she was talking about maybe that part of it was sort of her choice a little bit, but then she got unlucky with a shoulder injury and maybe she didn't have uh, what it takes to stay at the top for 10 years. But imagine that talent to be able to do what she did. That's just incredible. And most probably something that we won't see, Andy. We talked about Coco Goff. I don't know. What do you think? I mean, is it, is it even possible to be 16, 17 and have any kind of results like Andrea Jager did? What do you think? I mean, obviously, you, you said it yourself earlier. She beat Billie Jean King one and one in the semis of Wimbledon, Mats. I mean, Billie Jean King's got 20 Wimbledon titles. And, and, and this girl dispatches of her in probably about an hour's time. Um, so, no, I don't think we're going to see that. I don't think certainly we're not seeing it on the men's side. And to see teenagers anymore breaking through, I think we've determined in, in prior shows. And certainly we're not the only people on podcasts or, or on Tennis Channel or anywhere else talking about the fact that this is a, a much more mature athlete's sport right now. Uh, we're still seeing Serena Williams winning matches and vying for, for, for slam titles, and we're still seeing Venus Williams out there competing at age 40. So to think that we're going to see another Andrea Yeager ever again in our lifetime, very unlikely. Now, even more unlikely is, and I know that you're shocked, but I want to get right into it. What about what... Rafael Nadal did winning Barcelona, beating Stefano Tsitsipas in that final, holding off a match point. I mean, there were times when this just looked like an old grizzled boxer in the ring with a much younger spry 25, 26-year-old Tsitsipas who's dancing around the ring, and yet somehow or another Rafael Nadal figures out a way to win that fight. I mean, just an unbelievable, not just match, but the whole week. Because right. I was watching from the first round. And I mean, there were times in the first few rounds for Rafa where he did not look at all like anything that what Rafa Nadal normally looks like by the time Barcelona comes around. But in all of the matches, he looked rusty. He looks a little bit older. And somehow he plays one or two points. And as a spectator, I went, oh, well, there it is. Okay, he's going to win this match. And I, I think that he uh, is getting stuck in his sort of old pattern a little bit too much early in matches, uh, which is trying to loop that forehand cross court, uh, spin it up high, and he's won so much with it. Uh, he's trying to spin the serve in, or does he go for the first serve? He was double faulting a little bit more than normal. Even in Monte Carlo, he did. 
and he's a bit stubborn with this pattern, but he's maybe more a genius than we would ever realize because he sticks to his patterns until either A, his opponent is so tired that they can't win this match anyway, or B, Rafa finds out I can't win playing the way I used to. I got to change it up a little bit. Uh, and that's what he does. Suddenly he plays a different point, And then suddenly he hits the forehand down the line. And now he breaks his pattern just to go back to the old pattern again. So, I mean, the genius that he is on clay is just unbelievable. And I prefer watching him now because he's not overpowering guys. He certainly wasn't overpowering Stefanos Tsitsipas. But one, he needs to win matches to, to gain confidence. Give me a break. How many tournaments does he have to win to, to gain confidence? But then when you see him, Andy... I mean, you, you said it. You looked, he looked like the old George Foreman when he came back, when he was in his, in his 40s. But where does he get the, the, the intensity of, I absolutely hate to lose more than my opponent? How does he keep holding on to that feeling? You know, it's almost, it's, it's almost a fine line, Matt, between hating losing and fearing losing. I, I, and I don't know where those two part ways a little bit, but we see him throw in some untimely doubles and some untimely uncharacteristic errors that are indicative of a guy that is tight. And I, and I said to you, at what point does Rafael Nadal go out onto a tennis court anymore feeling like I have nothing more to prove and he still feels like he's got a lot to prove out there and he's probably his harshest critic. It's interesting, Andy, when you watch it. I mean, we talked about it a lot. Of course, he saved a match point against Tsitsipas, but he wasn't choking. He doesn't choke when he's match point down. Right. He doesn't choke in the big moments. He chokes early in matches. Right. And that used to be the case. He choked early in the first set because we all did that. Because we, I think, uh, if you want a bunch, you are uh, you fear losing or you hate losing, whichever one. I could never figure that out. Uh, so early in matches, you're praying that please give me a chance to have a chance to play my kind of tennis against my opponent. Please don't allow him to play his best tennis because then maybe I don't have a chance. So that's fine. We all did that. Rafa now also gets a little nervous. Even when he wins the first set, he comes into the second set. That's when he used to just blow people away. Now he gets nervous again. And he plays a couple of tight games early in the second set. But when it's five all or a tiebreaker or a match point, he's not nervous. So I don't know where to, uh, where to put him uh, in terms of uh, being the favorite at the French Open. He's going to become the favorite at the French Open after a couple more weeks on clay courts. But how long can you win matches like he does physically? I mean, he's, is he still the strongest guy out there or is it just the size of his heart that is so uh, gigantic that he refuses to uh, roll over unless he's tried every single trick in the book? I'm not sure. I'm so impressed with him now and I prefer the way he plays tennis now because I see there's a human in there uh, that uh, gets nervous and cares so much that it holds him back at times. But how about the other guy, Stefano Tsitsipas? I mean, Stefano Tsitsipas, is he a contender to the French Open just because he had match point against Rafa Nadal? That has to take him in his mind into that next level. Of, oh, I can beat Nadal on clay. I mean, that, that puts you uh, as a favorite. Can a young guy win the French Open? 
Well, two things. I, I think first of all, with regard to just putting a a little bit of a of a bow on the on the whole Nadal chat, it's it's it comes down to the Connors quote: "The guy plays every point like he's broke," and and to find those those occasional athletes, and and you know, I, I believe Tom Brady's name has to be thrown back in there. You know, and, and, and as does Tiger Woods and these guys, these guys hold themselves to such high levels. Rogers, same thing. Novak, same thing. And and it's it's just really, you know, an, an amazing thing to watch a guy that has everything play like he has nothing. Now, as far as Tsitsipas is concerned, because he's the guy, don't you think? Without a doubt. Without a doubt. I mean, he he's he is a guy who's got all of the physical gifts. And really, you were the one, Matt, that pointed out his relentless desire, his insatiable desire. He is obsessed with going out and winning. And since you've kind of pointed that out on numerous shows in a row, I've started to really look for that. And I saw it when the match was over. And I saw it when he was sitting there and he had put in such an amazing effort. Here he had won Monte Carlo the week before and gets all the way to the final. He's got match point on Nadal to win back-to-back -back on the clay court circuit and to beat Rafa in Spain on center court in Barcelona. Like, it was right there, and, and you could just tell that he just felt so unbelievably disappointed. I mean, he, 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 he didn't make any excuses. He was a gentleman about it. He was a sportsman about it, but he hated it. He hated letting that one get away. And that little look in his eye at the end of that match told me that that makes him that much more dangerous at Roland Garros. As you, was the clay, was the lead up to the French Open, was the clay court season quite the same when you were doing it as it is now? Well, not quite as long, but we started the same thing. We started in Monte Carlo, uh, we played in Rome. Uh, there was a small tournament in in, uh, uh, in Madrid that sometimes was before the French Open. There was a, the German Open in Hamburg, uh, of course, which uh, is the spot that Madrid, the Mutua uh, Open in Madrid, they took that spot, I believe, from Hamburg. So, yeah, it was important, uh, uh, important tournaments before. I think it was important for me to win one at least, maybe two, which happened a couple of seasons, not many. Uh, so I, I can see how Tsitsipas is absolutely heartbroken because I think winning that would have completely catapulted him uh, into into the next level. It, it's it's very interesting. Ash Barty, Andy, I know you love Ash Barty. We got to touch on her a little bit. Uh, obviously, uh, won the French Open. She won Stuttgart now indoors. What a clay court season she's having, Matt. Unbelievable. I mean, it's the best thing in the world. That what Andrea Yeager just told us that Ash Barty made that decision. It's like in the days when I played, when the Australians they nearly took the boat over and they didn't go home at all from from the clay court season all the way through Wimbledon and then through the American hardcourt season. Then I would go home in sort of October. It was six seven months on the road. Ash Barty is. is I think she's improved now again. There's something tougher about her. I love watching her play because she's so different. What I think is driving her right now is maybe there's something in the back of her mind. And as we both know, Australians are inherently very, very proud people that take it personally if they feel that they have been disrespected. As athletes, as people, whatever the case may be, if you disrespect an Aussie, you do it at your own peril. And I think then Ash Barty's case, it would seem to me that there has been a lot of questioning of her worthiness of the number one ranking 
while we're watching Naomi Osaka go out there and we've used the boxing analogy. So we'll go back to it and, and, and watch Osaka go out there and look like Mike Tyson in his prime, the way she knocks people out and just overpowers them. And they don't even know what, what has hit them. And then all of a sudden, suddenly Barty is, you know, being questioned for her again, her worthiness of being the number one player in the world. Well, she just continues to answer those questions week after week after week. And suddenly I don't think, anybody's asking that question is Ash Barty worthy of the number one ranking in the world right now. Are they? No, I don't think so. I mean, no, not at all. Because she's figured out uh, how to play on clay. She's figured out how she can use that forehand, which has become a bigger weapon. Now Uh, she looks like she moves maybe better than before. She looks as strong as anybody. Her first serve is one of the best serves in the women's game. How do you have such a big serve when you're, when you're not uh, taller than Ash Barty, but obviously her technique is incredible. But I do think that it's her ability. I'm not saying that emotionally she has the same strength that Rafa Nadal does uh, or Roger Federer or maybe Novak, but, but I think tactically Ash Barty has that same ability to find every opponent, every uh, uh, circumstance in terms of wind and sun and surface, and the quickness of the tennis balls, she somehow is so involved in the tactics that I think she finds it interesting to not win matches, but to solve problems the way Andy Murray used to seem to enjoy uh, that part. And, and we hope that that uh, returns to Andy Murray. We know Rafa Nadal has that, has that in him always. We know Federer does. Emotionally, I've seen Ash Barty slightly flat uh, uh, once in a while, the, the year she won the French Open, she came to Wimbledon. Um, I think she lost to Alison Risk uh, in in the third round, maybe the fourth round, uh, and she didn't look like she was that into it. So I think she's learned how to deal with being number one in the world, which I have no idea how you learn how to deal with that. But I think this has been a great a great uh, time for Ash Barty to be home in Australia for as long as she was during. Uh, last year, still being ranked number one in the world and now coming out and feeling comfortable. Hey, I don't care. I'm number one in the world. I'm not losing tennis matches, especially not on clay courts because I have time, especially not in Miami on a hard court because I can work things out. So I think that she now, I believe she is the worthy number one. And I think she's going to be tough to take uh, uh, to, to take away, take her away from that top spot. I don't know. Naomi Osaka is going to do that on a consistent level if they play head to head yeah Osaka can overpower Ash Barty but in terms of being number one in the world I love I love that she's up there and she's so important for women's tennis because the way she plays if anyone is qualified to try to analyze what is going on inside the mind of a number one player in the world it is certainly Mats Vlander who happened to get to that spot in 1988 All right, when we come back, we're going to be joined by Johnny Levine and his good friend Don Pompan, who had a great career as a junior in Southern California, was the number one player at Harvard, had a stint on the pro tour, is now an orthopedic surgeon, but also the coach of his son, who's gotten to a very high level playing collegiate tennis uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. So, want to thank Andrea Yeager for joining us earlier. We're going to be joined by Don Pompan next. You're listening to kickserveradio.com, part of Tennis Channel Podcast Network. More to come 
with former two-time Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine and Don Pompan right after this. Nestled in the spectacular Sun Valley area in Haley, Idaho, Matt's V-Lander Tennis allows athletes like you and me to train inside so that we can excel outside. Former number one and seven-time, yep, that's right, seven-time Grand Slam champion Matt's V-Lander now owns Gravity Fitness and Tennis. And let me tell you, Gravity is the premier fitness and tennis club in the Sun Valley area. They have it all, including indoor tennis, lots of high-quality training equipment in a clean and bright, spacious workout area. They have yoga and Pilates, as well as hydro options. They also have martial arts and something I had never seen before, TRX suspension training. But most importantly, let's talk about the tennis. You will be trained by one of the all-time greats in the sport of tennis. Time on court with mats is an amazing experience, one I assure you you will never forget. After my clinic with Matt's, every time I step on the court, I hear that focused intensity in that charming Swedish accent, reminding me of all the techniques that improve my game and get results. So grab your family, your friends, or the whole tennis team and head out to Haley, Idaho for a tennis experience of a lifetime. Go to mattsvlandertennis.com to find out what's in store for you when you get to Gravity Fitness and Tennis in beautiful Haley, Idaho. Welcome back, everybody. Final segment, kickserveradio.com. As you know, we are part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, and we are now joined by our third partner in crime, two-time Texas Longhorn All-American Johnny Levine. And Johnny, we're pretty excited about our featured guest tonight, aside from the great Andrea Yeager, who we, of course, want to thank for joining us a little bit earlier in the show. But you and I have been talking about bringing on this guy for a while now, and you grew up more with his younger brother, Bruce, than the gentleman we're about to introduce, but I know you're excited uh, at who we're about to talk to. Yes, Andy, very excited to have Dr. Don Pompan on the show with us. Uh, Don has a a vast career in in tennis. Uh, Obviously, he played college tennis, junior tennis, a little stint on the pro circuit, ended up becoming an orthopedic doctor. But boy, this guy knows tennis and he knows all levels of tennis, having played uh, a great career himself and then having a son who uh, was a tremendous player um, playing great junior tennis and then ending up playing college tennis at Penn. So let's welcome Don to the show and, uh, and talk some tennis with him. Don started out in Southern California with your junior career, where you were one of the top juniors in the country, went on to become the number one player at Harvard. And most notably in playing for Harvard, you were known for being a dead ringer for Paul Michael Glazer, who many of us remember as Starsky on Starsky and Hutch. And for a guy that did impressions of the likes of Don Adams of uh, Get Smart and and also uh, of Brent Musburger, which you've You've denied that, although I've read it in your Wikipedia, so it must be true. Don, welcome to KickServeRadio.com. It's really nice to, to see you and, and to have you on tonight. Well, first of all, it's just a pleasure to be on with both of you. I listen uh, to you guys often with Matt's. It's, it's just tremendous tennis knowledge, and I truly believe this is one of the best places to go to hear a perspective that you just tend not to hear on, on some of the television shows. 
that we watch and it's more in depth and you guys have a very just it's just an honor to be on i really appreciate it well it's an honor to have you and you talk about a unique perspective and that's really what johnny and i were looking for from you tonight which is the perspective of being a guy that grew up in a very accomplished tennis family that went on to accomplish great things as a collegiate player and to play some pro tennis but then to have a son come up through the ranks who had a tremendous junior career competing with the likes of Tommy Paul and some of the top young players that are out on the tour representing the United States on the ATP tour nowadays uh, and and for him to have a great career uh, at the University of Pennsylvania talk about the dynamic of having been through the you know the, the the trials and tribulations of junior and college tennis and then to be able to to pass that knowledge on to your son and to do so in a way that I think we all consider to have been been healthy with regard to that relationship and as as we all know that's not always an easy trick to turn is to be as involved with your kids tennis as you have been and for him to want that to be the case it's a tremendous challenge i have to admit that um, my son played a lot of sports growing up, you know, when he was nine, 10, and he gravitated towards tennis. And the decision is, is whether you're going to take on and coach your own kid. And that's a very big decision because the bottom line is the most important thing at the end of the day is your relationship with, with your kid. That's it. And we have seen that these relationships get compromised when the parent goes into the role of coach. I knew that from the start, but at the same time, I felt that I had the knowledge to help him and we had the relationship that could not just survive, but, but prosper and, and be benefited you know, by that relationship. I have to admit, it was a lot of pressure as well. Um, and in, in the aspect of maintaining the relationship, but also maximizing his tennis. Don, let me ask you, we're talking about uh, parenting, coaching your, your kids and junior tennis. One of the things I, I distinctly remember, your younger brother, Bruce, who I met at one of the 12 and under national tournaments, and the way I met him was, was pretty unique. Um, I don't know if you know the story, but at 12, 12 years old, while all the kids were out playing while they weren't playing their matches, they were out on the field running around playing soccer, what have you. I go in to see my, I think it was my dad at the time, ready to leave the courts and, and, and there Bruce is talking to all the parents and his parents, your parents were not at that tournament. Bruce was there on his own, but that was how I met Bruce. And we've had such a great relationship and I actually became super close with your whole family. And, and the way I did was traveling for better competition to Southern California, staying at your, your, your family's house and playing all the, the great Southern California junior tennis tournaments. But the point I'm trying to make here is we all were much more, it seemed like independent than the kids today. And you've had a, a kid, you know, fairly recently in junior tennis and, and talk a little bit about the difference from when you grew up playing in the seventies and eighties as a junior and not having your parents around. Cause I, I don't recall your parents going to any of the matches uh, my dad did go with me quite a bit, but but I but I also went on my own a lot. I mean, I traveled to Florida when I was 12 years old on my own and and, and a, a lot of different places. So talk about those differences. I'm, I'm curious to get your perspective on that. Well, 
you know, there's so much there. Uh, first of all, my parents did go to the matches, but certainly not the national tournaments. And, you know, when, when I played, it was, it was a different world. And I think that explains part of the failure in American tennis now that's not talked about and our greatness then. Because what we did then is, as you said, we would go to a tennis tournament. There wouldn't be parents around. There would be a barbecue, for example. And we would all maybe bring a racket in our bathing suits and we would go jump in the pool and then we'd go out and play dinkum or something and we'd, we'd bet on it. And all we did was compete and we fought with each other, but there was no parent to, to make the relationship, you know, ugly. And there was no entourage and no camps. So when you would play, you'd lose your match and you'd sit around and you'd watch everybody else play. It was it was just a different environment. And we got respect for each other. And there were fights like you've never seen fights like like we would see in the juniors. You know what I'm talking about. I mean, we guys would almost come to fist fights, but somehow 15 years later, they're friends. And if you don't mind, I'd like to get Don's take on. Because me, me and you talk a lot. We met with Matt's on the show. We talk about the Americans and the struggles that American tennis has had. We do have a great crop of guys. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's a lot of great American tennis players, but there's not Grand Slam champion American tennis players. I think interest in American tennis wanes because we don't have that. I'd, I'd love to get Don's opinion on where American tennis has failed to have guys competing for grand slam championships and, and top 10 rankings because they're non-existent. So, so Don share, share with us your, your thoughts on that. Well, it all starts with junior tennis. I mean, everything starts with junior tennis. And as I told Johnny, when we grew up, we've talked about this a lot. I mean, this is all we talk about practically when we grew up, there were so many mini Ken Rosewalls out there, for example, there was tremendous technique. I mean, when you think about the guys, just guys coming to my head, forget about John McEnroe and those sort of players. When you think about a Peter Renner and the artistry with which these guys played, they were beautiful players. Illy Nastasi had nothing on a lot of the juniors that we grew up with. And it's all about one word, really, technique. And the, we had tremendous technique. I mean, when you look at the volleying of so many guys I have friends that still volley tremendous. You are a tremendous volley volleyer. My two brothers are tremendous volleyers. And then I watched Rublev volley the other day. And obviously he's not a volleyer like in our day. And a lot of the guys don't even serve as well as they did in our day. But now we come to the problem, which is the ground strokes, which is tennis of today. And this is where having a son who was smaller and didn't have a huge serve. I mean, I'm telling you, he was five foot when he first played at Kalamazoo in the 16s. I mean, that's challenging. He played a guy that was 6'2 with college coaches watching, and he's 5'1", 5'2", I should say. I'm selling him short a little bit, but, but literally a foot taller. He has to have perfect technique when you're talking about his ground strokes. So there's no margin for error. So I became very aware of the technique. So when you watch these Americans play, their technique is much worse than the Europeans on a frame-by-frame -frame basis. But how do we get the coaches, Don? We're, we're, who's going to teach the great technique? Because these guys, obviously, 
were, you know, the great ones were taught it, right? At some point in their career, they didn't just figure it out on their own. Okay, so here's the problem. And then it gets back to our structure. When you're playing a tournament a week, like these kids do in 37 tournaments a year, when do you practice technique? So the problem is, is it's so much about the early result when you're young. So we get big guys with big serves who dominate. The little kids can't really, you know, the guys who who should be phenomenal. Uh, I'm talking about guys that are 5'8", 5'9", 5'10", 5'11", not 6'4". We don't develop those players because you can't develop technique when you're playing tournaments all the time and you're trying to win. So that's the problem that I see in American tennis. We have a failed system based on rankings that come out every week, tournaments every week, and there's not enough emphasis on technique. So that leads me to my question, Don, which is, you know, to to Johnny's point, you know, we've got all these great resources in the United States and all these great facilities and and the home of American tennis in in Lake Nona uh, outside of Orlando. But then you've got a guy from Athens, Greece, who's probably the most likely guy to come in and maybe win the next major outside of the top three. You got a guy from Austria that just won one recently. So you're talking about obviously Tsitsipas and team there. So isn't it safe to say that there is um, a, a, a cultural overlay to these issues and maybe part of maybe one of the symptoms of a cultural deficiency, if you will, with American tennis are the constant adherence to the concern with results and the tournaments every week and all of that. And is that something that the other international federations are taking a more intelligent approach toward than than American coaching is? Well, I don't know about what's going on elsewhere. I mean, that I can't comment on because I, I, I don't see that. But what I can tell you is this. When you see Tony Didal, or somebody who who comes up, I watched that Stroke of Genius, you know, movie, and you see somebody who comes up with a technique and a way to hit the ball. He's not at some big academy like Boletari. He's on Mallorca on an island. You know, we did what we did here in our backyard. And I had a bunch of old guys helping out and, and Johnny and people like that who contributed. My point is, sometimes innovation comes from a source that, that is is in a small place. But in U.S. tennis, there's no place for those voices. So we have a, a problem is we have a structure in the United States that doesn't foster this. It doesn't foster an exchange of ideas and innovative thought. want to thank Don Pompan. want to thank Mats Vlander, of course, Andrea Yeager for joining us, special guest tonight, and, of course, for Andy Zoden. Johnny Levine, Matt Svelander, this is KickServeRadio.com, part of the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. We always enjoy getting on and talking tennis, and hopefully we'll hear from you and see you guys all real soon. Enjoy Tennis Channel. Got some great events coming up, so watch all that tennis on Tennis Channel. <laughs>